I'm a killer. A murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. Did you see that, Zack? Clear as a crisp spring morning. to episode 54 of Screaming Through the Ages. This is another Screaming Chronicles episode where I will be going into a number of different topics, including, you know, games and anime and movies. And on this particular episode, I'm going to be talking about Spider-Man 2, the recently released video game for PlayStation 5. And I hope to have some other segments thrown in there as well. We're going to start off with video games, and I'm going to be talking about the PlayStation 4 as we passed its 10th anniversary about a little over a month ago. And this console has been in existence for 10 years now, and I kind of want to dig into it and talk about it and my experience with it. Um, you know, what are the sales? What are what was the launch lineup? What were some of my favorite exclusives on the console? So on and so forth. I'm just going to dive deep into the PlayStation 4. And, you know, I hope to do more of these in the future. I hope to be able to cover some of these other consoles. And also, you know, I really want to start maybe next year doing like year in review episodes where I take a certain year in games and kind of go down uh, my top list of games from that year. So first and foremost, the PlayStation 4 was announced at the PlayStation meeting on February 20th of 2013. I distinctly remember this because in the past, we had usually had at least one E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, before, uh, you know, it was announced at an E3, and it was at the next E3, and then it would release that fall. That was the traditional console cycle. And these consoles just bucked the trend, and they started something which we've seen, unfortunately, grow, which is a lack of communication and kind of more of a silence, especially from Sony. And we got that, you know, 2013 in February was when this was announced. I think the Xbox went in May, and then they both had E3 presentations. Now, at this PlayStation meeting, we first saw the console. We saw some games. I can't remember if they showed the console or not, but we did see uh, Knack and Infamous Second Son and Drive Club and um, Killzone Shadowfall. So we saw four games that they were prepping for the console. Now, as a lot of us know who have followed this console, Drive Club was an absolute disaster. 
it was ended up being delayed and released almost a, a entire year after it was supposed to. And that team ended up going out of business. But that was the PlayStation meeting. It was all very cool. There wasn't really, you know, that's where we saw something like Deep Down for the first time, which was a Capcom game that was supposed to be like Dark Souls that still has never seen the light of day. And we saw some other third party things. I can't remember any specifically right now, but yeah, that was the first showing of the PlayStation 4. And it, yeah, it was all very exciting, all very cool leading up into it. And then, like I said, it was shown at E3, and it was kind of a devastating E3 if you're into watching those, watching those conferences and stuff at E3 where you know Sony had taken the stage, Microsoft had already went, they undercut their price by $100. So it came out at $399 US dollars, and also 349 Great Britain pound. And I think it was also 399 euro. And the Xbox One was 499 US dollars. So they cut the price and they basically took jabs at it saying, you know, there's no DRM needed. You can share games with your friends, all this kind of stuff. And it was one of the biggest death blows that we've seen in any kind of E3 conference and I think it's led to kind of where we're at today. Some mismanagement at Xbox at that time kind of doomed them a little bit. But the console finally released in, and it did have a staggered release. And shockingly, Japan had to wait a while to get this from launch. It released in North America on November 15th of 2013. And they were trying to, you know, combat the Xbox One. They were trying to go head to head with it in the U.S., which was and still probably remains Xbox's biggest territory. Then they released it on the 29th in the POW territories, which is Europe. And, you know, they really didn't need to go after Europe first because they have a had a death grip on Europe anyway. And then they didn't release it in Japan until February 2nd of 2014. So with all that stuff kind of out of the way, I want to talk about my experience with picking up this console, with getting it. I was, I did have it pre-ordered. I pre-ordered it at GameStop, I remember. And that was back when I lived in, oh, about an hour east of Columbus here in a smaller town. And uh, yeah, I would go to GameStop for a lot of stuff, but I've since remedied my ways of that. But yeah, I do remember pre-ordering it from there. And you know, I was a had this thing released probably a year earlier. I wouldn't have been able to get it because I was just kind of out of college, just kind of starting out. And at this point, I was at least a year and a half out of college and had been working for about a year and a half. So I did have some funds for it. Remember, one thing about the box was the carrying case. It had a handle on it. So and I think I went I don't think I took a day off for this one or maybe I did. I can't remember. But I do know that I I went and picked it up and took it home. And I do remember going to Target and doing some kind of so my cousin and I got this thing at the same about the same time. He I pre-ordered it. He went and waited in line at a Target. Him and his uh, wife waited outside of a Target. I can't remember if they were married at that time, but no, they weren't married. But him and his girlfriend waited outside of a Target for a long time in the morning and 
uh, they were able to get in and get one as well. So I remember we utilized targets by two, get one free on this stuff. I think he got one game and I got a couple. And yeah, I remember chatting with him all the time on this. You know, I didn't have a significant other. I didn't have kids or anything like that. So I was just playing this all the time. And it was really exciting at launch, you know, taking it home, setting it up. It's always fun to set up a new console, a new piece of technology. But the PS4 was extra exciting because it was the first time that I bought a console on launch or at launch. I had the Xbox 360 close to launch, but it was still like a month after or whatever. And it was a Christmas present. I didn't go out and get it myself. So it was the first console I bought with my own money. Well, yeah, I, th I don't know if it was the first I bought with my own money, but it was the first I at least got on launch day. So I've got this thing home launch day. What what do I think of it? So the shape of the PS4 is so weird, but I kind of really like it. I think the PS4 is one of the best looking consoles that I've ever seen. It's unique. You know, you look at the I have nostalgia for like the PS2 and I have nostalgia for the second iteration, you know, the slim PS3. But there's something about that PS4 design that is just it's unique yet it's very sleek looking. I think that's the problem with a lot of the PlayStation consoles or just consoles in general. They don't look that good. You know, I think it looks I think it looks really cool. I I like it far better than the design of the PS5. Now I like the design of the Xbox Series X, but it it just looks weird. But anyway, I think the PS4 is one of the best looking consoles there is. I like the shape. I didn't know what to think of it at first, but I really do like it. And I like how with the Pro model that they released, they just stacked another like trapezoid on top or rhombus or whatever it was. Also, the functionality. So you have to think using the PS3 and the cross media bar. Go back and play a PS3 if you have one booted up or something. It is a pain in the butt. It is very cumbersome to work that thing. And Mark Cerny, who was the architect of this, really overhauled his team um, really overhauled the user interface and the graphical interface, and it was wonderful. I loved the new kind of cross-media bar that they put together, and uh, you know they made it better, I think, with PlayStation 5, but the jump from the PS3 to the PS4 in terms of the user-friendliness and the usability of it, it was great. I, I loved it. One problem, though, is there was absolutely zero backwards compatibility which hadn't been a thing at console launch ever before with PlayStation. PS2 played PS1 games, and the launch PS3s played PS1 and PS2 games, and unfortunately that thing didn't sell. I could have foreseen, you know, if the PS3 sold, I bet they wouldn't have iterated so many times, and we'd probably have a lot more of those backwards compatible models out there in the wild. Which I don't think backwards compatibility was with Xbox One at first either. I think that came gradually over time, title by title. And now Xbox has a really good backwards compatible system where you can go and play a bunch of original Xbox, Xbox 360, and of course Xbox One on the new console. Whereas the PS4, you couldn't play anything but PS4 games. And they remedied that since with the PS5, at least uh, we have some older games, but uh, it's still still nowhere near as complete. That is something where Microsoft 
will probably always beat PlayStation at. It's just honoring its legacy. Unfortunately, Xbox just doesn't have as solid of a legacy with myself. There are a lot of games that got abandoned on PS3. That's why I still have my PS3 plugged in. I still have a stack of about 100 PS3 games here. But that was definitely a drawback. Everything else about the console, the controller felt really good. If you're going from the DualShock 3, uh, which was used on the PlayStation 3, it's very much similar to the DualShock 2. It's very much similar to the DualShock 1 from the PS2 and the PS1. And they kind of feel chintzy and cheap. But the DualShock 4 actually feels weighty and it feels really good. Now, it's very different compared to the DualSense from the PS5 now, but I've I've always liked the DualShock 4. I think it's a really cool design. I really like the way that controller feels. And I've always been partial to the sticks down at the bottom rather than the offset stick that we have with the Xbox. So that's kind of comparing and contrasting the features of it. Um, I was really excited to get it up and going and and really wanted to play stuff on launch day. Now, we're going to go ahead and talk about the launch lineup, and I will talk about any of these that I actually played. So we had Killzone Shadowfall, which I'm a huge Killzone fan, so I absolutely had that uh, day one. You know, Killzone Shadowfall was a first-person shooter. It was the fourth entry, fourth mainline entry in the Killzone series and it's a bit of a departure it's a bit brighter from the other kill zone games uh, you have knack which was this colorful kind of platformer that was actually developed by mark sarney who put together the ps4 i'm sure as a favor but this one was targeted probably towards kids and getting the younger audience in you have resigun by housemark which was i still haven't played resigun to this day it's more of like an arcadey type game um, where you're rescuing people, I think, on little ships. Uh, the camera's really zoomed out, but I haven't played Resogun, but people do love that one. Then for the, so that was kind of the first and second party games. And then for the third party stuff, you had Assassin's Creed Black Flag, which again is, I think, the fourth mainline entry in that series as well. And more of like a pirate game. Uh, you have Contrast, which was this indie game, which I will talk about in a little bit. Uh, DC Universe Online got a version on PlayStation 4. I think it had been a PC game. I don't know if it was on PS3 or not, but it did get a version here. You had Battlefield 4, which is you know military shooter, Call of Duty Ghost, which is one of the worst Call of Duties I think most people agree on. Then you have Lego Marvel Super Heroes. And that kind of speaks for itself. Skylander Swap Force, which was, you know, one of the big Skylander franchises that had the little figures that you can kind of buy and play in the game. Warframe, which was a free-to-play kind of cyborg ninja type game. And I think it's still going on today. Injustice Gods Among Us Ultimate Edition. I'd already played the original edition of this by this point, so I, I know I didn't get that one. And then Need for Speed Rivals. So that was all the stuff that was available on launch. There were several things that were kind of touted as launch games. Drive Club was one of them. You always try to get that wide variety of games when you're launching a console. So there's something for about everyone. And then there was something like Watch Dogs, which wouldn't end up. That was one of the most hyped games around this like whole cycle. But that would get delayed and wouldn't end up releasing until, I think, May of 2014. So at launch, I had Killzone Shadowfall, 
at Assassin's Creed Black Flag at the new Madden game. I should mention that all the sports games were re-released for the PlayStation 4. And I got contrast because it was the very first free PlayStation 4 game. So Killzone Shadowfall, um, I played. It was a pretty solid game. I didn't like it as much as Killzone 2 or 3. It was a little different. Knack, I would end up... I didn't play that until later, but I did end up renting both Knack and Lego Marvel Super Heroes. I didn't really like the style. That was my first Lego game. I didn't really like the style of that. And uh, Knack was Knack was fine. It was like a Pixar-style animation game that was, you know, it was fine. It played fine. The story was whatever. But it was cool. It was cool to have something different there, but I did rent that later. You know, back when you still could rent games. And Assassin's Creed Black Flag was really fun. Assassin's Creed, I didn't care for the story much. I mean, I think people liked it a lot more than I did, but the ship combat and the pirate stuff was pretty cool, I thought. And Contrast was okay. Contrast was a fine platformer. It was good for like a free game. The thing is, is I was so you get so bored at launch because you have this initial wave. And then there's really nothing else for a while and you're stuck playing kind of older things. And that's just that's usually what goes along with the console launch. But this one was especially barren, not the launch, but kind of post launch, because 2014 would end up being one of the worst game, one of the worst years in games that I remember. And there was some good stuff in that year, of course, but it was pretty barren. It was pretty sparse. It was a down year. And it was because people kept, you know, before this console kept pushing the narrative of console gaming is dead. It's all going to mobile. No one wants to buy a console. So it took a while for some of these companies to support the new consoles. They just weren't into it. And I don't think we've seen that before, at least not for a long time. And we certainly didn't see it with like PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series consoles. Yeah, that was kind of the narrative. So it was kind of a dry year in 2014. But at launch, you know, I, I made it through my games. Uh, Killzone, Assassin's Creed were the main games there. I played Contrast because I didn't really have anything else to play. And I even played some DC Universe Online, which is not like me. But my cousin really got into DC Universe Online, I remember and he also got into, I think I played a little bit of Warframe. I don't know if he did or not. And um, we, of course, had the sports games. But he got into something that was released in February. And I'll go a little bit of the launch window that they call it, which is, you know, usually a few months after the console launches. In January, we got Don't Starve was the only major game that came out. In February, we had Outlast and major game on PS4, I'm saying. Uh, February, we had Outlast, which is the one that he kind of got into and played. I mean, really, uh, you were really just playing whatever you could find at that point. But uh, we also had Rayman Legends, which I also rented and played. And we had Thief, which I bought. And I enjoyed, even though it didn't get great review scores. But that was kind of a reimagining by Square Enix of the old Thief series. And in March, we had the prequel or prologue to... Metal Gear Solid 5, which was Metal Gear Solid Ground Zeroes, which I remember buying and playing. And then also Infamous Second Son finally launched in March. 
And, you know, that was that was okay. I think it was I think it played the best of any of the infamous games, but it was my least favorite in terms of story. But that was a very solid game. Um, It's not one that I would look upon as one of the best exclusives of, you know, that was done by Sucker Punch, who is now working on Ghost of Tsushima series. And yeah, it was a little bit of a departure from their earlier infamous games, but I think some good and some bad of that. But as you can see, the launch lineup, launch window, it wasn't incredibly strong, but it wasn't bad. Uh, It's just the fact that it was coupled with 2014 not having a whole lot. And I distinctly remember around this point in February, March, I was like, where are the release dates for some of these games? I don't think we had had Wolfenstein, the first order, the new order. Can't remember what it was called, but um, that was the the reboot of the Wolfenstein franchise. And then you had like watchdogs. We didn't have release dates for those. I think both would end up releasing in May. And we had stuff later in the year like Dragon Age Inquisition, but a lot of stuff got bumped. And it was really just kind of a down year. So there's no way around that. So the first year of this thing's life, it's kind of like, you know, why did I even buy this thing? And that happens sometimes with consoles. But 2014 was a, a very distinct year in that sense. But it would pick up in 2015 for sure. But, you know, you had to wait a little bit. All right, let's talk about sales numbers at the end of this thing's life. You know, as of March 2022, that's the most recent numbers we've had. It's shipped 117.2 million consoles and is the third best selling home console and the fifth overall console when you bring in handhelds. I think it only trails the PlayStation 2 and the Switch. So pretty impressive, a very good selling console. And the crazy thing now is PS5 isn't even that far behind it in sales. It's kind of caught up, even with the 2020 pandemic stuff. To break down the sales number a little bit, it sold 30 million in the US, uh, 24 million in Europe, including 7 million in Germany, 6.8 million in the UK, 6 million in France, and 3 million in Italy, and 8.2 million in Japan. I think this breakdown of numbers was of 2019 when I saw it, but that's a little bit of a breakdown of the major territories and what it sold there. And to go through before I give my list of my favorite games, just a broad highest rated games, according to Metacritic, and I tried to keep out any re-releases, any remasters, anything like that, just strictly, you know, newer games. And there is one in here that is kind of questionable. But I think it counts as it was kind of remaking and redoing a lot of the aspects of the older game. So the highest rated PS4 game is Red Dead Redemption 2, followed by God of War reboot. Then The Last of Us Part 2, Metal Gear Solid 5 The Phantom Pain, Persona 5, Uncharted 4, Divinity Original Sin 2, Undertale, Bloodborne, The Witcher 3, Inside, Resident Evil 2 Remake, Celeste, Shadow of the Colossus, and Overwatch. And I think that's a good mix of different types of games. You know, you have PlayStation exclusives there. You have some of the biggest, most prolific games in there. You have little indies in there. You have weird role-playing games thrown in there. So, yeah, it's a little bit of everything. 
And my personal, so now this is, I want to protect my other list a little bit because I am going to do you know, year by year list. If I would go and say take 2018, I want, would want to give my list of that year without having everything spoiled by you kind of listening to this episode. So what I decided to do was exclude third party games. So I'm only going to be talking about games that specifically only initially launched on PlayStation 4 or on PlayStation in general. If it was on PlayStation 4, I would count that as the main driving platform, even if it would come to PS3 or something like that. So those are my parameters, and I'm going to give my top 10. I could easily give a longer list because there were just so much, especially with the Japanese role-playing games, which are exclusive to PlayStation a lot of times. But uh, my top 10 would be, at number 10, is 13 Sentinels. This is a Vanillaware game, and it's now on Switch as well. If you haven't played 13 Sentinels, I don't want to recommend it to everyone, but I love this game, and it never gets talked about. In 13 Sentinels, it's basically like a strategy game mixed with an adventure game. So you have two sections to it. You have the first section, which is more of like a story section, and you have these 13 different characters that have their own kind of select screen. And you basically go in and you select a character and you can play a little bit of their story and you see their progress as you go along. You know, how many, what percentage are you at of their story? And you can only play a little bit before you have to unlock someone else's stories. So say you're playing with one character, you play up to a certain point and it tells you you can't access any more of this until you've played this other character's story up to this point. So at that point, you have to switch. So you could either, you know, keep switching back and forth from characters. I would usually play a character's story out as long as I could and then switch to another character. But it, that part is so fun and so satisfying. Uh, switching between these characters, getting to their stories, seeing how all of their stories interconnect and learning more and more as you go along. And it's a really heady sci-fi story. It's pretty intense and I really like it. I think the story is excellent. I think the characters are excellent in this one. When you're going into the character screen, you basically are just going around and uh, talking to people. You're going interacting with objects. You're trying to figure out how to make it through this memory or whatever piece of story you're going through. And that's always fun. It's always fun to see the characters intersecting because the way it starts out, I don't think hardly any of them um, intersect or know each other and then the but you just keep going through there until you get all 13 characters stories finished and it kind of leads you to this overarching narrative and then you have the strategy segment which are basically you're in these mecha fights where you're protecting these points and it's very um it's not as glamorous as you would think i would recommend seeing a trailer of this before you get it but if you're into sci-fi and you like that kind of adventure game with a little bit of strategy elements. I mean, the strategy part isn't that hard. I think you can turn down the difficulty as well if you're struggling. But it's kind of fun and enjoyable in an old school way, the strategy part anyway. But it's just great for the story and characters. And I would absolutely recommend that. I think 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim is one of the best games on the PlayStation 4. And it's very underlooked. But it's an excellent game. So try that one out if you haven't. And... Again, maybe watch a trailer to see if that's something you're into because it is very, uh, it's very specific and you can probably get it for a pretty good price right now, but I would highly recommend that one. 
At number nine, it would be Quantic Dreams Detroit Become Human. This is also kind of an adventure game, the new style of adventure game where you're playing as these different characters and essentially the story is about androids and their rights and all this other stuff as you're going through. And you're playing through, I think, three different characters, but you're essentially playing chapters that have a lot of different ways that they can end based on your actions. And it's it's a really cool game. It's a really well told story. I think it's the least clunky of all of the Quantic Dream games. So definitely check that one out if you're into that kind of game. Uh, number eight is Until Dawn, which is another adventure game. <laughs> but this one is a horror one. You get to make different decisions and there's a lot of different outcomes that can play out. You know, everyone can you're basically switching through characters as the story goes along. And you can either, you know, everyone can live, everyone can die. And that's a really cool one. I like the way that one goes. They've that is uh, super massive and they've done different uh, versions of this going forward. I think this is still the best. They've done several different other types of horror games like this. I think this is definitely the best. So yeah, Until Dawn is one of the most fun games you can play on PS4. Then from fun to unfun, uh, The Last of Us Part 2, which really is a solid game and a really fun game to play, but it uh, it's not very uplifting and it's kind of hard to trudge through. But then at number six, I have the God of War reboot from 2018. I wasn't quite as smitten with it as everyone else, but I think it's a really strong game. It's got a decent story, and I love going through the Norse mythology. I think the sequel even ramped it up and maybe made it better. But I thought the combat was great and everything else with that one. I still prefer the older style of God of War games, um, even though they're less serious, more juvenile, that kind of stuff. But hey, I don't think we're going to be going back to that anytime soon. Number five, I have Horizon Zero Dawn, which was developed by Guerrilla Games, which you know had done the Killzone franchise, so I was already a fan of them. And when you say you're adding in robot like creatures that you're fighting and taking parts off of, and um, you've got this post-apocalyptic story, and I really do love that game. And there's so many good little side quests and little civilizations and areas that you run across. That world is really cool. Fighting, you know, the robot dinosaurs, robot animals is really cool as well. So Horizon will always hold a place in my heart. I really latched on to that game. What was that, 2017 when that came out? And I think it's excellent. Number four was Final Fantasy VII Remake. Now, I came to the original Final Fantasy VII late, probably in the... I was in college when I played it. My roommate kind of pushed me to play it, and I absolutely fell in love with the game. And the characters and the story and the addictive gameplay loop. Now, the remake changes a lot of that, but this is from a ground up complete remake if you haven't played it or heard of it, and it is done really well. I'll still have that special place in my heart for the original, but I can't wait to play the sequel to this, which is part two of that game, which is coming out very soon, I think in March. But yeah, I absolutely love that remake. It, uh, it was the announcement of that. I remember getting announced and it was such a crazy moment because this is something that had been rumored for a decade almost. And uh, to finally get that and play it and see that they did such a good job with it. I was really happy. Number three, I have Ghost of Tsushima. I love samurai stuff. I love all that kind of stuff. So when Sucker Punch took on an open world samurai game, I was in uh, the story's great. The characters are awesome. 
and I love the world and the different activities you can do within it. I can't wait. I hope they announce a sequel to this soon. I mean, we're about at that time that uh, it should be coming out. I think 2020 was in Ghost of Tsushima came out. So we're, you know, we're right there. We should be getting it soon, I hope. But I love it. I love the samurai style games, and I hope we get more of those. It seems like we are getting a little bit more, but love that one. Number two is the original Marvel Spider-Man. I'll be talking about the sequel to this later on in this episode. But this game just really captured me. I love Spider-Man. You know, Spider-Man and Batman are probably my two favorite characters after the X-Men, and the X-Men are pretty much just ignored these days for the most part. They don't really get the star treatment, so got to make do with Batman and Spider-Man, and luckily we've gotten excellent games from both of them. And Insomniac Games, who was known for doing Ratchet and Clank and other games like that, really outdid themselves in this one. And they, you know, threw a bunch of the villains. I love to see Shocker in there. That's not really a spoiler. But there's you know different side activities, different things like that. The story I thought was excellent and had some really poignant moments to it. I absolutely loved Marvel's Spider-Man that came out in 2018. And it was really, you know, I loved it so much that it was only bested by one game. And these probably would be, I'm talking PlayStation exclusives here, but these probably would be, mm, they're right up there with probably at least in my top three, the number one and number two here. So Spider-Man would probably be in my top three of games in general on PlayStation 4. And number one for me is a game that can't be beat, except maybe by one other third party release. I'm not sure where I have those ranked these days, but this was my first foray into the Persona franchise, and it was Persona 5. From the music, to the style, to the characters, to the dark storytelling, Persona 5 just had me. And the combat system is a really fun tweak on uh, the turn-based kind of role-playing game system. I highly recommend, if you like, if you can stay in some anime-type stuff and you like uh, RPGs. Persona 5 is the king of RPGs, at least of uh, Japanese role-playing games. Absolutely fell in love, and I fell in love so much that I went back and played 3 and 4 um, on my PlayStation 3 not too long afterwards. I couldn't wait to get more. And yes, they are long games. They do take a lot of your time, but they are so worth it. And you know, the fun aspect of Persona is, yes, you have the dungeons where you're fighting but you also have these moments where you're just a high school student and you're spending, you're picking who to spend your time with. You have a limited number of time and you can only spend so much of it with people. So you kind of have to pick what you do on each day. So that's a lot, really fun. In closing, I love the PlayStation 4. I think it is probably one of my favorite consoles of all time, if not my favorite console of all time. I don't think... It'll be beat anytime soon. I do like the PlayStation 5, but I think PS4 is still better in terms of just the amount of large games we got and the the ease of use and just all the fond memories I have with it. So let me know. I want to know what your experience was with the PlayStation 4. If you had one, what are your favorite memories and moments of it? What are some of your favorite games? Let me know. And um, yeah, I will wrap up this segment Hopefully I can do some more of these type of segments in the future, but I will keep moving on with the show. This episode of Screaming Through the Ages is brought to you by Zencaster. 
So I want to highlight something that I haven't really before in Zencaster. And you all know I use Zencaster for everything I record exclusively now just because it sounds better. It's easier to use. It really is. And plus, a lot of the times, you know, it's easy. We've ran into situations with backup issues. It's a lot easier to recover lost recordings, lost audio on Zencaster than I found it to be anywhere else. But I really want to highlight, if you're looking to make the switch to YouTube, if you're looking to get into video podcasting, there's an easy way. You can record every episode with video through Zencaster, and you can get your separate MP3 and MP4 files to create your podcast audio-wise and video-wise. And that's a pretty cool feature. I've definitely recorded that way before. I have yet to put anything on YouTube, but it's hard out there to get MP4 recordings unless you're going through something like Skype. I feel like Zencaster would definitely make it an easier way to get your MP4 file, get it downloaded, edit it, and get it out to YouTube. So I just wanted to highlight that feature as it's something I don't think I've really talked about on here, but you have the option to, when you're recording with Zencaster, to record just audio, to record audio and have video on at the same time, and to record your video and audio. So there's several different options you have with Zencaster, and it's a really cool tool that I love using. So happy Zencaster chose to partner with me for these ads, and they're looking to save you a little money if you're looking to sign up. You can go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code SCREAMINGAGES, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all of my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Okay, for this next segment, I want to do something that I haven't done in a while, and that is react to an article. I've done this, I think, a couple times, but it's been a while since I have. I think I've done one on Elevated Horror before, and I just saw this article, this headline as I was going through, and I found it pretty interesting because I both disagree and agree with it at the same time. And I'm really interested to know other people's takes. Someone like Dan Johnson, especially, who actually watches a lot, of, has probably watched most, if not all, of these TV shows or series that have been on this list. But this is an article on digital trends. It was penned by A.A. A. Dowd. And the title is Godzilla Without Godzilla? Stop turning blockbusters into streaming soap operas. And so I did a little background on A.A. Dowd, who um, I just wanted to see what kind of articles he wrote. Seems like he's very entwined in the MCU, writing articles about Marvel. So it seems like he's coming from a place of deep fandom in that sense. And from what I take is just a little upset that... A lot of the TV series and things like that that are going around, I shouldn't keep calling them TV series. They are just series a lot of times. But 
he's kind of upset with the way things are going and how companies are choosing to turn them into TV shows without having much. I mean, you can look back and I I don't know if he mentions this in the article. We'll go through it step by step here. But you can look back to something like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where that first thing where I just had no interest and I was kind of feeling the same way. Like, I don't want to watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I don't want to watch something without the superheroes. But let's dive in and see what AA has to say. Just shy of his 70th birthday, Godzilla is now a TV star. Except not really. Monarch Legacy of Monsters, which premiered earlier this month, and this was written on November 30th, on Apple TV+, Plus takes place in the so-called Monsterverse, a.k.a. the same continuity as the recent American movies. Uh, we don't really need to, to know about that. But the G-Man himself is scarcely involved. He pops up for only a few minutes across the 10-episode season, as if appearing for a contractually obligated cameo. You see, Monarch isn't actually the Godzilla show. Subtitle aside, it's less of a monster mash than an ensemble melodrama about plucky monster hunters working out their family baggage. Okay, so let's stop there for a minute. And I've only watched the, at this point when I'm recording, uh, there have only been four of the Monarch episodes released. And I don't know what uh, this guy thought he was getting with Legacy of Monsters in the first place. I My greatest expectations were not to see Godzilla. I didn't think we'd see much of Godzilla at all anyway. I was expecting to see some other cool monsters and get into some other cool situations. I mean, I feel like you knew going in that this was going to be an adventure show. And the writer might have known that. Absolutely. And I'm not criticizing you for not that not being what you want. But if you were going in with different expectations of this show, I don't know how you arrived at them. I mean, I hope like everyone else that we're going to get some monster action. Seems like this guy has seen the entire series at this point. But I really I really do hope we get more monster action than just these people walking around them. But I think what we've gotten is cool so far. So. Yeah, this is where I'm a little torn. I see the point. But you should have known, you know, what you were getting into. Earlier this fall, Peacock premiered its own small screen version of a big screen property like Monarch. The Continental from the world of John Wick is one part spinoff, one part prequel. A limited streaming series that fills in the backstory of Winston Scott, dapper hotel proprietor of the John Wick movies. Wick, though, is nowhere to be found in the show. And those who pressed play expecting more of the acrobatic action and flavorful archetypes that characterize his starring vehicles were confronted instead with another ensemble melodrama. This one set against a funky 1970s New York and only periodically enlivened by Kung Fu. So I'm going to have to say, like, I think Monarch is the only series that I've actually watched in here. I have a lot of these on my watch list that I'm going to try to tackle probably in January or so when I get through my uh, rush that I'm going through right now. But here's the thing is, were you expecting to see John Wick in something set as a prequel? I don't know. This is where I'm torn because, yeah, I, I get it. You're not getting what you signed up for. You're basically getting something that's been regurgitated. And we'll, we'll get into that. I don't want to ruin AA's point and jump the gun here. But is that what you were expecting going into the Continental? Were you expecting a lot? Maybe you were expecting some action and violence and stuff, but you certainly couldn't have been expecting John Wick or anything of the sorts. 
So I, and it's not like the character, I, I don't know. Let's just keep going because I haven't seen the series. I don't want to talk too much about it. Both shows exemplify a dismaying trend in cross-medium adaptation. The transformation of pulp into soap, a kind of genre filtering for streaming subscribers. On movie screens, Godzilla and John Wick offer spectacular East Meets West mayhem, promising, sometimes literal, lizard-brained entertainment. But television is too small for the legendary monster turned legendary attraction and the man, the myth, the legend. The appeal of these icons has been squashed to fit the demands of a limited series, with most of their B-pleasures sacrificed on the altar of the prestige TV formula. There's lots of gab, lots of characters, lots of serialized interpersonal conflict. Such makeovers were common in 2023, as TV executives dared to ask, what if Goosebumps was Stranger Things? And what if Edgar Allan Poe wrote for Succession? The year in television arguably kicked off with the most high-profile example, the HBO adaptation of PlayStation video game The Last of Us, which would swiftly become a critical and rating sensation. In broad strokes, it was a faithful retelling, spreading most of the original plot points across nine episodes of weekly television. This wasn't a huge leap, a game whose celebrated storytelling caught comparisons to prestige TV upon release a decade ago was probably always destined to become actual prestige TV. Yet if HBO's The Last of Us preserved the specifics of Joel and Ellie's cross-country pilgrimage, it also trimmed away many of the genre elements that fruitfully ballasted its fallen world bonding and brooding. Wow, enough with the $4 words here, man. We get it. We get it. You're smart. In making the story over for premium cable, Neil Druckmann demonstrated the zombie horror, the stealth outlaw action, was to the alchemy of his Naughty Dog masterpiece. The show is like an all-cutscene cut, pruned of its thrills to feed the tonier taste of, say, a six-feet-under fan. It's like ordering a steak and getting a deconstructed plate of garnishes instead. And I actually absolutely get where the writer's coming from here. Because that's the problem that's always been the problem adapting video games to film is so much of the time in games, you're focused on playing and going through the different elements. And The Last of Us is a very tense game, a very tense experience. And again, The Last of Us is on the short list um, of shows I need to get to. And I believe I already have it downloaded on Max, just waiting to go. But the problem is, and I absolutely get where he's coming from, is when you're just, and this has always been a thing with The Last of Us, it's always been compared to, oh, this needs to be a movie or a show. Oh, this is an actual story that elevates things. The problem is in games, so much of the storytelling is brought together. I mean, you can go watch a cutscene, you know, movie, which is done for almost every game. Uh, people put together all the cutscenes in a game as one like YouTube video. You can do that, but you're not going to feel it the same way. You're not going to be there playing. You're not going to get the interactive storytelling. You're not going to get the whole cohesion. Now, it seems like The Last of Us turned out pretty good, but the author is arguing that it kind of dropped the tension in those kind of moments and just focused on the drama of the characters. And I think that is the trend, and that's what's going on with all this stuff. So, I'm going to continue. I'll go deeper into my thoughts at the end of this, but 
HBO is arguably the leader in this field of degenre genre fare. Does it go back to Game of Thrones, an era-defining hit that used George R.R. R. Martin's bestsellers to mint a new kind of grown-up fantasy saga for the peak TV age? Thrones said you could have dragons and zombies and magic and still tell a sprawling, character-driven epic of Tolstoy proportions. In the most superficial terms, it asked, what if Lord of the Rings was The Wire? Networks have been chasing that kind of zeitgeist, redefining Smash ever since. In part by wondering how geek-friendly properties like Godzilla and John Wick could be made palatable for casual viewers looking for their next Sunday night obsession to discuss around the water cooler. Now here is where I take his point. This is kind of what's happening. You are watering down these things because at one point my wife hadn't seen any of these Star Wars films. And I know a lot of people like that as well. And it's because it's all of this, it's perceived as all this high science fiction, high concept science fiction with all the you know lightsabers and ship battles and all this stuff. It's very pulpy. And that's why you stay away from them. Now, she eventually did watch them and like them. But a lot of people will just shrug that stuff off and say, no, that's not for me. That's the thing. I've had to introduce my wife to a lot of different things including Marvel movies, because I'm like, it's not just what you think. It's really not, and I think you would enjoy them knowing the types of movies that you like. And I think that's the problem. Without people like us pushing certain people into watching these things, they never would. But you redesign Star Wars and put it in this kind of, you know, the Mandalorian skin or Andor or something like that, and it's more grounded, quote-unquote, it's more about characters and story development and all that kind of stuff. And people flock to it that had no interest in the movies before. So it's absolutely the watering down of stuff. The question I'm going to ask later is, does that matter? Does it matter if it's watered down, if it's still good? It might not be what you're looking for, and it might frustrate me a little bit under the surface, but I absolutely get, and it took me a while to get into the fall of the House of Usher, because of that kind of, you know, did Edgar Allan Poe write for succession? The way that story is told is so disenchanting. It's so, uh, those characters are just awful, terrible. And it takes so long to get invested in any of it. It takes really until they're getting killed off. Because it is so grimy and so seedy and everything else. But that is what people go to. You know, people who don't really watch horror movies. I listen to a podcast, um, a video game podcast. The guy does not follow horror movies that close, watch them every once in a while. But he watches Mike Flanagan's series that are on Netflix every year. Why? Because it takes that theme of horror and everything else and mixes it into this melodrama format. And whether you agree or disagree with that, I think it's pretty plain to see. But the question comes down to, do we care? Yeah, I, I get that's not really what I was looking for. Fallen in the House of Usher was not at first what I was looking for. Legacy of Monsters, I kind of knew going in what my expectations were. I'm not looking for the next big Godzilla film, the next big Godzilla blockbuster. We've got plenty of those coming to the big screen, you know. I was looking for a cool little show with some unique and new monsters, and that's all I was really wanting. And that's really what I've gotten so far now that we'll get into that show a little later on. Um, I'm hoping that show picks up the pace a little bit because it is kind of dragging. But I get this point. I get the point. 
it is all watered down. It is, let's take this to the most base level so the mainstream and general audiences can devour it and comprehend it and actually watch it. They're going to watch something like The Last of Us when you tone down. Again, I haven't watched that show, but when you probably tone down some of the zombie action, it's kind of like we're getting to the point where you can throw anything in any setting and you can call it like, let's throw this soap opera in the middle of a zombie apocalypse and call it The Walking Dead. That's essentially what you're doing. Now, is that much different from, you know, horror? I don't I don't know. The zombie film has always kind of been about. The zombies are just there set dressing. They're there to set up the world. They're part of the world building. The real drama comes from within the people. And that might be different for something like Godzilla or John Wick, where you're there for Godzilla to see the monsters. A lot of times you haven't been treated to a good story, although if you haven't seen Godzilla minus one and it's still playing in theaters, get out there and see it, whether you're a Godzilla fan or not, because that is best picture material right there. I'm telling you with character development and story. But you're looking, you're usually not looking for that good of a story. Same with John Wick. You're there for the awesome choreography, the Kung Fu fighting, as he put it earlier. That's what you're there for. So when you're looking for something else, I mean, you, I think you just have to realize that these are different. Let's continue with the article, though. There are, without doubt, budgetary benefits to this approach, of course. Filming people talking is always going to be an affordable way to do movie-sized material on a TV allowance. Last of Us that largely cuts around the skirmishes with the undead. Godzilla that keeps Godzilla and friends largely off-camera. A John Wick that offers ass-kicking and dribs and drabs. These are cost-effective reimaginings. The latter two also manage to tie a new story directly to related blockbusters without totally violating the visual continuity. Neither Monarch nor the Continental look made for TV cheap probably because they skimp on spectacle in favor of handsomely high production values. Still, maybe the real reason TV creators keep making something talky and grounded and plot-heavy out of popular B-movie premises is that they have a lot of runtime to occupy. Watching Monarch, it's hard to shake the feeling that the story lasts 10 episodes in order to last 10 episodes. The demand for a certain amount of streaming content is determining the nature of that content. Could you do 10 hours of Godzilla destroying Tokyo? Maybe, but that would require both enormous resources and the creative gumption to stretch a kaiju movie logline past the two-hour mark. Faced with a full season of television to fill, the creators make like a high schooler straining to reach the required word count of their essay. The plot of Monarch is structurally tangled. It spans half a century telling an intergenerational family drama without ever becoming particularly complex. Episode-long flashbacks feel like dramatic filler. I like that the author here plays a little devil's advocate with you know, their own point. And I agree. I mean, I've been beating on this drum for a long time, especially someone who watches anime where it's so structured and it's like, you know, you get 12 or 13 episodes in a season. Why? Why can't we tell, you know, if you only need eight episodes, use eight episodes. If you need... 15 episodes, use 15 episodes. That's my whole thing. And I feel like this comes back. We've, we're much better, much more evolved, probably because of streaming than the old days where 
you had 24, you know, 45 minute long episodes in a season and you were probably stretching the material a bit thin. And it seems like that's what this guy thinks with the Monarch show is that it's kind of just they have to fill 10 episodes. So that's what they're going to fill. My problem is, is if you don't have enough to fill 10 episodes with this kind of thing. I mean, I don't know. I, I need to see the whole series before I can make any judgment on this. And the same with the other series, because I haven't even seen them. But I do like that he's taking a little bit of another stance. Like, you know, we have to fill it with something. We have to make this drama because we can't just have monsters fighting the entire time. There's no reason, of course, that we can't have ambitious TV reworkings of genre fare. If you're going to move these stories to the small screen, why not do something different with them? HBO has found success thinking outside the box in the proverbial video store aisle. It's how we got a cerebral puzzle box adaptation of Michael Crichton's Killer Robots Potboiler Westworld, and a Watchmen set in the world without superheroes. Both those shows denied their audiences the basic genre appeal of the source material, but offered something unique in its place. So I think these are two more that proved, you know, we're going to take the genre stuff, strip the genre elements, and put them out there for the most part. And they were huge hits. And I think, again, that comes down to the earlier point of, yes, we are watering down these things so mainstream audiences will talk about them and watch them. Which I'm never, listen, I'm never really a favor in favor of, but it just all comes down again to is the show good or not. That's all that matters. In lieu of the lowbrow hooks they abandon, what do shows like Monarch and the Continental offer? Mostly a lot of thin characters trudging through melodrama that stretch thin. No one in Monarch, no, not even the guy jointly played by Kurt and Wyatt Russell, is interesting enough to make you forget how long it's been since Godzilla showed up to step on something. And no one in the Continental, which plays like a generic Elmore learned throwback, is interesting enough to keep you from missing the star power of Keanu Reeves or any of the martial artists he battles in the Wick films. Meanwhile, both shows demonstrate that the a negligible plot would be better than a dull one. It takes real effort to drain the fun from a world where every other bystander is actually a deadly trained assassin or a world where prehistoric creatures loom like mountains. Godzilla without Godzilla is not an unworkable premise. Neither is John Wick without John Wick. But to reduce these popular mythic franchises to mere story machines, turning out a few episodes of overstuffed soap opera vaguely in the key of Toho or Keanu is brand abuse. When you're a hammer, the whole world is a nail. And when you're a TV exec, every cool genre premise can be tamed into something blandly bingeable, trimmed of its disreputable qualities and reshaped into fodder for the recommended for you cue. So that's the end there. That's the end of the article. And it's hard for me because I do agree. Like, yes, you are putting soap opera drama and Monarch is starting to get to that point for me. Now we'll find out when I watch the rest of the episodes, if it gets any better. Is there some cool stuff every once in a while? But it's starting to get a little bit. I feel it's sagging in the middle. I feel like it started off so good with the plot and Kurt Russell was so fun. But the last episode kind of just dragged a little for me. And we'll see if that gets better. I can't judge that until I've seen the rest of these six episodes. So, again, I'm so torn on this, and I'm so curious to hear what other people think about this. Because, yes, it is taking something we love and something that could easily be very much genre 
and heavy on the genre elements. And it's stripping it of that and kind of putting it on display as a more mainstream form of entertainment. I mean, you even get Kurt Russell here, who is probably the biggest star that any of the MonsterVerse stuff have, you know, got John Goodman aside. Uh, Kurt Russell was probably still a bigger draw. And yeah, I think there's sprinklings of stuff in there and there's some good stuff in there. And hopefully we get more. It's hard for me because I thought the first few episodes were setting up some really good kaiju stuff. And then we didn't really get that in episode four as much. But I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to have to wait and watch these things. And I'm the problem with The Last of Us and why I've avoided it for so long is I'm so fatigued on The Last of Us. And it seems like and this might not be a thing to people who one aren't playing games and two aren't following deeply into games. But if you're following games as closely as I do, and they're just constantly, you know, here's a remaster of the last of us. Here's a remake of the last of us, you know, only six years or six or seven years after we put out the game. And here's a last of us part two. And now we're doing a remaster of last of us part two. And it's just so much crap shoved down your throat. And you get so sick of hearing about the last of us. But I do want to watch the show. I will get to it. And I'm curious to see how different it is from the game, because I do like both games as fatigued as I am on them. But I really. You know, it takes something special to get me interested in the zombie genre in general. But I want to know. I want to know what everyone thinks about this. I Again, does it matter if you're enjoying the show and it's good? Does it matter that it's doing something different? I could see with something I don't I don't even know what to compare it to because with John Wick and Godzilla, we're getting, you know, two Godzilla movies within like what, four or five months from each other. And we just got John Wick for this year. So it's not like we have a lack of the other thing. These are just trying just like the MCU. Like I didn't watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I didn't, you know, begrudge Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because I had plenty of Marvel stuff going on at the time. And now it seems like Marvel, they're the ones putting more of the interesting stories on streaming than they are in their own movies, which are flailing and gasping for air right now. I think some of that is due to fatigue. Some of that is due to poor films that are being put out. I haven't seen the Marvels. I'm not commenting on the Marvels. I'm just saying uh, when they used to, say, put out three movies a year and two would hit with me, it's kind of swapped to where they put three movies out a year and I enjoy one of them. So where they're hitting home runs on the TV level and I think doing more interesting ideas on the TV level, some other people are just trying to make a quick buck and kind of watering down things. And I, I get that. But again, I'm enjoying Monarch still. Does it matter if the show's good? People enjoy The Last of Us that are into the video game. So does it matter? Does it really matter? Uh, I just want your take on this because I know it's a kind of a controversial topic that I can, again, see going both ways. But that's going to wrap up this little article reading. I know some people have expressed interest in liking this thing in the past. So I saw this and thought this would be perfect to add into this episode. But let's go ahead and move on with the show.
Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Anime Season Reviews. Now this will be my last concurrent one of these. I've been doing these every one of these Screaming Chronicles episodes since I think the beginning. And this will be the first time I will take a break from them in the January episode. And that's just because, you know, the fall season will end at the end of December. And then I'll have to wait to be able to watch all these and to be able to watch them dubbed and things like that. So there will be a little bit of a break and I'll get back to them in February when I hope to do, you know, both my fall and my kind of like top 10 anime of the year piece in that episode. But this one is for the summer of 2023 season, and I will be doing it a little bit differently, mostly because of timing. With these other ones, I'm usually a couple seasons behind when I record them. For instance, in November, November when I was recording, we were almost through the fall season, at least over halfway through the fall season when I was recording that one. And it was for the spring season, so... Now I'm here, we're not even done with the fall season, and I am wrapping up the summer season here. And I gotta tell you, at one point, I didn't know what I was going to talk about for this episode, or for this segment, and I was thinking about bumping this one to the next month's episode just because of timing and hoping to get other shows finished that were running, you know, a couple cores, but... I think in the end, I had some really good shows hit near the end of this uh, season that I was watching, and it kind of redeemed a lot of it. And I thought, you know what, this is at least better than last summer season. So let's go ahead and roll with it. Now, this is a little bit different in several ways. I just told you with the there are a couple of shows that have been dubbed completely for this season and something from last season, like the sacrificial princess and the king of beast or whatever i can't remember the title of that but uh that one had like continuous cores in the spring and summer and the summer part of it was done so i was able to see that whole thing this time with a couple of shows namely jujitsu kaisen season two which is a hotly anticipated season for a lot of the anime fans and uh Rurouni kenshin there's gonna be problems with Rurouni kenshin and getting that one in for the year anyway um, i could at least watch it to see if i like it and think it'll stick the landing but that was an aniplex show and unfortunately unfortunately with aniplex they're usually delayed a lot and we see the same thing with demon slayer where a lot of shows now will start their dubs two to three weeks after the you know the japanese airs the original japanese episodes air 
Anaplex does it a little different and kind of pushes things back. And it can be five, six weeks later. And I had two of those running for the spring season in the newest Demon Slayer. And Dangers of My Heart was not Anaplex, but it was High Dive. And it was about the same six weeks behind. So whereas Crunchyroll and Netflix try to get their stuff dubbed as soon as possible, Anaplex kind of screws around. And usually those shows play on multiple places, Netflix, Crunchyroll, all of that. But I'm digressing here. I'm mainly saying that there are a couple big shows that I haven't been able to watch. And there's always that because there's some shows that haven't been dubbed yet. High Dive is kind of falling way behind on their dubs. They're only doing one or maybe two if we're lucky in a season. And the rest are kind of getting pushed back to home video, which is taking a long time. We've seen the same thing. You know, we have Kingdom Season 5 premiering next year. And then... Season four has still not been dubbed, and that is a Crunchyroll property now. But anyway, um, I'm digressing on the state of dubs right now because usually it's pretty good. For most of these, we're a couple weeks behind. What also makes the season a little weird is I've got one anime, and I tend to do this if a show is, in fact, Japanese, even if it's on Netflix. A lot of times it's hard on Netflix because something like Blue-Eyed Samurai is not made from Japan doesn't come from Japan. I don't count that as anime, but something like Gamera Rebirth does, and I would count that as anime. The other weird thing is you're going to see a movie or a TV special that's put on here as well, and it was just an hour long, a little under an hour long. Yeah, that's mainly because it was so good I didn't want to leave it off the list, and I did want to mention it, and it is setting up for an anime that's going to come out next year. So I'll get to that when we make it to that part of the list, but what I have for you is a list of eight of these shows or movies. I would say a chunk of those are not my favorite, (laughs) and they're probably lower. Um, In other seasons, I probably would have dropped them sooner, but I mean, we have two shows on here that I didn't even finish, and I've had those before. Usually it's not this many, though. Let's go ahead and just dive into this. And at the very bottom in the eight slot on my list is probably the one that hurts the most of any of this. And that is The Misfit of Demon King Academy Season 2. So this one's weird in the first place because it started back in winter and then it stopped and then it pushed itself all the way to the summer. And if you knew about the first Demon King Academy, the Misfit of Demon King Academy, in season one, this was part of that COVID release where it was supposed to start in spring. I think it had aired a couple of episodes and then it got pushed back to summer. So this has been a weird series like that. But this is done by Silverlink and ran for 12 episodes. The general synopsis of the whole show is basically... Anos Voldegord was a tyrannical demon king that eradicated humans, spirits, and even the gods, but became bored of eternal warfare and reincarnated with dreams of a peaceful world. However, what awaited him in reincarnation after 2,000 years were descendants who became too weak after being accustomed to peace and all sorts of magic that deteriorated to the extreme. Anos enters Demon King Academy that gathers and educates those who are viewed as the reincarnation of the Demon King. 
but the Academy would, could not see through his true powers and end up branding him as a misfit. So essentially, you know, that's kind of the synopsis of season one. But essentially with this guy, he is the Demon King reincarnated because he wants a peaceful time. Well, when he goes here, he is super overpowered and there's a lot of humor and stuff around that. And he spends a lot of time regathering allies and things like that. Season one, I thought was great and a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, this one is streaming on Crunchyroll. And the genres are action, comedy, fantasy. The tags are Demon King, Demons, Magic, Magic School, Non-Human Protagonist, Overpowered Main Characters, Reincarnation, School Life, and it is based on a light novel. Yeah, this second season just, I think I made it five or six episodes into this one. And this second season was just not good. It was, it was just a jumbled mess. It was almost like, and keep in mind, a lot of times I will go back and watch recap videos of the previous seasons when I'm going to these shows to try to get into the characters more. And I just, I just couldn't. It was just kind of all over the place. It jumped around. None of the story really made that much sense as to why they're doing these things and what they're doing. I feel like there was some good background stuff that was happening, but we never saw that head on. So I don't know. This for me was a complete disappointment. I was expecting this to be a fun season two, and I think they're doing a part two of it as well. So I I won't be watching that. I didn't get to finish this one unless when they come out with the next part of this, unless it is really blowing people away, I'm not going to be interested. I did, and I don't think I noticed at first, but usually if something falls like on my anime list below a seven, unless it's something I'm really excited in or a sequel season, I'm probably going to skip it. And I, this one eventually did fall below a seven. So when I looked at other places, it seemed like people liked it, but I'm glad to know it wasn't just me because I was so disappointed by this. This is the bottom of the summer season, but not by a whole lot, unfortunately. And I would say this is just skippable, even if you liked the first season. I wouldn't watch it. I think it's just too jarring, too confusing, too jumping around all over the place. I had to rewatch the end of episode one. I had to go back and rewatch the end of that episode because I thought I missed something. And really, it's just kind of jarring the way episode two starts. That's just how it is. So uh, this is an avoid for me. If I was putting in a tier, it would be in like a D tier. It's not terrible. But honestly, I wouldn't waste your time, even if you're a fan of the first season. Next up, we have Gamera Rebirth. And yes, this is a small step up from the Misfit of Demon King Academy. Uh, luckily, this thing was only six six episodes long. Uh, this is done by ENGI Engi, maybe. And again, ran for six episodes. The uh, the synopsis here just says the anime will be six episodes long, focusing on the titular Gamera fighting five kaiju. Even that doesn't pay it much, you know, gravitas. So this is on Netflix, if I haven't mentioned. The tags are action, sci-fi, child protagonist, conspiracy, historical, kaiju, military, monster of the week, monsters. This is interesting. It gives a content warning for explicit violence. And I think that's where part of the problem lies. And I know some of those older Gamera films have like the childlike, really dumb plot lines along with, you know, more violence than we'd see in Godzilla films. And I like some of those for sure. 
I think I'm out on some of the more sillier of those. And I think that's the problem with this. I don't know who this is for. The tone is just all over the place. I didn't need a dark Gamera story, but I didn't want like a plot focused on children who were probably sane and doing things beyond their age. And yeah, I was so excited for this when this dropped in September. I was all over it, but it just wasn't good. I think the animation was janky in a lot of places. And while these kaiju look pretty good, everything around them, the story is a mess. I mean, Gamera looks really good at night. And then I feel like when he's in broad daylight, you can tell there's some stuttering and jarring animations. They just didn't animate it very well. They're using some crappy CGI stuff in here. And I don't want to diminish their work. But I just I think Gamera Rebirth was a complete miss. I'm I'm still hopeful we get something someday that's more, you know, maybe a movie or something. But this just didn't do it for me. And it's funny, you see, you go on Twitter and all that stuff, and you see all of these people who are just praising Gamera Rebirth and loving Gamera Rebirth. And then I'm like, well, why? And then I talked to my buddy, Will. He didn't really like Gamera Rebirth for the most part. I think he liked it maybe a little better than I did. But then I go on Anime Planet, and it is ranked 10,602 and has just over a 3 out of 5 star rating. So that's pretty low as far as anime are concerned. Yeah, that's that's very low. That's not good. I mean, The Misfit of Demon King Academy was ranked in like the 4,000s, and that wasn't even that well received either. Gamma Rebirth was a miss, and these two are very disappointing. These bottom two are just so disappointing to me, but uh, yeah, those are that's number seven. Um, I would also give that a D and say, avoid it unless you're a diehard Gamma fan and you want to see the kaiju brought to life in like a more modern format. And here we go, causing controversy. At number six, I've got ZOM 100, Bucket List of the Dead. Now, this one ran for nine episodes. I think I made it through five or six of them. Done by Bug Films and is on Netflix. And on the opposite, this is ranked 580th. Now, you'll have to remember that these things kind of get elevated when they're airing and as more and more people get to them after the show finishes, because a ton of people do binge watch like myself, they drop, they tend to drop a lot. But just the fact that it is in the top, you know, 600 is pretty good. And honestly, I can see why people like it. It's just not my thing. And I watched it, I gave it a shot. I think it's good. I wouldn't say in comparison to the other two, I would say this is I could easily recommend this one. My problem with ZOM 100 was that, honestly, it's just too dark and jarring. You have these characters who are all happy-go-lucky, and then you just see this dark and messed-up stuff happening. I don't necessarily like that in my anime, as I know a lot of people have probably figured out by this point. I don't necessarily like just light and fluffy stuff. I do like that, but the just... It just felt like grim dark, like dark for the sake of being dark. And you get that a lot in anime. And it seems like horror fans have a lot easier time normally clinging to these horror anime than I do. But yeah, it just didn't work for me. I thought the characters were fine, but 
honestly, a lot of the moments are just, it's just one, it, again, it's too dark. It's too um, almost edgy, kind of like look at me kind of stuff. I honestly would have no problem recommending people watch this, especially since you can watch it on Netflix. It's also on Crunchyroll. Uh, it's pretty accessible, honestly. And I've heard a lot of good things. I know Victor Rodriguez, we talked about it. I think he liked the first several episodes that he saw. So this one's probably a good one for horror fans to get into. It was just too much for me, went a little too far. There wasn't really, it was a weird tone, again, kind of like Gamera. So I kind of fell off, but I would put this in like a C ranking for myself personally. Like other shows I've fallen off of, though, it's probably worth checking out if this kind of thing interests you. Okay, up next is the aforementioned movie and or a TV special, I guess as it's called. And at number five, I have Fate, Strange Fake, Whispers of Dawn. Now, I am a huge Fate fan, and I love the Fate series. You know, Fate Stay Night, the original that kicked everything off, is fine. I feel like everything else after it has pretty much eclipsed it. But I don't know if I've really watched a Fate series that I don't like. I think they're all really good. Now, this one we have, we don't have Ufotable, who did, who you know, who does um, Demon Slayer and did uh, the excellent Unlimited Blade Works. But we do have A1 Pictures, which is honestly one of the best in the business. I love A1 Pictures. I think they do an incredible job at animating. They have some of the best animation you'll ever see. They're behind Sword Art Online and a lot of other stuff. I think the first season of um, The Seven Deadly Sins. And yeah, they've done a lot of stuff. So I love A1 Pictures. Uh, looking forward next year, they're doing this full anime. So we're going to get a full season of this at some point in 2024. Also in the winter, which is shaping up to be maybe one of the biggest seasons on record, at least for things I'm excited for. They're doing the hotly anticipated solo leveling anime. So solo leveling. And that one's gotten a lot of buzz as much as Chainsaw Man. Um, I know Chainsaw Man had a lot of buzz going in as well. So that's something to look forward to. But as for this... This was a 55 minute TV special. And the uh, synopsis is, and if you're unfamiliar with fate, basically what fate is, it's a battle of kind of sorcerers who go into this thing called a Holy Grail war with the intention of killing their opponents and getting the Holy Grail and getting wish granted. And, And in particular, you know, they summon spirits of great, like, figures in history. It's usually, you know, people like Gilgamesh and King Arthur or Alexander the Great, just different incarnations of this kind of stuff. And they'll summon those, and those will basically be fighting for them with the goal of incapacitating their competition and moving on. You know, there are certain families and characters who run throughout a lot of these different ones. But uh, this one in particular is different because as the, you know, it's a weird name, but they're all called weird stuff. They were based off like visual novel games. And, you know, the first one was Fate Stay Night. That was the name of it. And you have Unlimited Blade Works. None of it really makes sense. Fate Apocrypha, Fate First Order. You know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. They're just kind of thrown all over the place. But I really enjoy the franchise in the series. And this one is a fake 
Holy Grail War. So this one wasn't set up by the, uh, the rulers, kind of. Somebody set up a fake Holy Grail War in America, and this is kind of the prologue of that and setting up who these champions are or sorcerers are who are going to be uh, doing battle. And we get a lot of crossover from other Fate series, you know, even something like Lord Almoloy, which was in itself kind of a spinoff of Fate Zero. And we get him returning here in this short special. But the uh, synopsis is a new Holy Grail war begins in the city of Snowfield with new twist placed on the battleground. This is streaming on Crunchyroll and the genres are action, fantasy, the tags are America, uh, contemporary fantasy, magic, proxy battles, superpowers, and it is based on a light novel. The content warnings here are animal abuse, explicit violence, and mature themes. So I ended up really liking this hour-long special. I thought it set up the next Holy Grail War really well, and I can't wait to see the full franchise or the full series. Now, that being said, you might want to wait a little bit if you want something to introduce you to the Fate series. I don't know if this is necessarily it. I think really you start with something like Fate Zero or you can start back at the beginning, even something like Unlimited Blade Works. If you're looking to get into Fate, I don't think this movie is it. But it did get me really excited and it can only go so high because it is a one. It's basically the equivalent of two episodes, so it can really only go so high. But I really enjoyed it, and I think the full series is going to be really good. So I couldn't recommend this necessarily to novices, unless you are just trying to dive in to the Fate world. I think this one's a little weird to jump into. There are plenty of other ones you can get into, and you'll understand everything more. But for those seasoned veterans of the Fate franchise like myself, this was really good and really did whet my appetite for the full thing. I can't wait to watch when it finally comes out next year. I would put this in that B tier of shows. It's really good, and I'd recommend it to Fate fans. Everyone else maybe proceed with caution. Next up is a spinoff, and we had one of these in the spring, and I didn't like it. It was the um, Ranking of Kings spinoff, where it kind of basically fills in other parts of the story and gives you missing pieces you didn't see in the original season. But this one was for one of my favorite shows in recent memory, and it is the romance show Hori Mia, The Missing Pieces. And, well, that's the name of this spinoff anyway. So this ran for 13 episodes done by the excellent Cloverworks. The synopsis is relive iconic moments between the characters of Hori Mia, not yet adapted to the anime. So again, it's filling in the pieces of the manga. The story was pretty much complete, or I felt it was complete, with the first season of this show. So this is kind of going in and giving you more of the slice of life stuff. But honestly, there's so much good stuff in here. Let me let me continue finish setting this up. The genres are comedy, romance, shonen. The tags are gag, romantic comedy, school life, and based on a manga. Now in Horimiya, let me just read you the synopsis of that a little bit. Kyoku and Izumi are two classmates who each lead a double life. The popular and talented Kyoko cares for her little brother by herself while her parents are away. And the quiet, bespectacled Izumi hides his many piercings and tattoos at school. After accidentally discovering each other's secrets, the pair become fast friends, and together they begin to navigate their new relationship together amongst unknowing peers and love rivals alike. So this was a different studio doing this, but again, it kind of goes in chronological order and just tells you or gives you these little stories, you know, a sports festival, it gives you a school retreat, 
at like a hot spring or some area. I can't remember where it is. Kyoto maybe is where they go. But it kind of goes through all of this stuff and gives you these missing little stories that were in the manga, but were cut out of the show because they probably weren't that important. But the difference here is even having not seen this show for a while, let's see. Horimiya was, and sorry, I misspoke. It was, the original was done by Cloverworks, but this was the winter of 2021. So we're talking about almost three years ago when I saw this. And even then I was able to just, where I was kind of struggling with ranking of Kings to get back into the characters. With this one, I was just pulled right back in. And even though I did watch a little recap, it didn't really help. There was only one character that I really kind of struggled with, but everyone else, it was so fun and enjoyable that I didn't really struggle to get back in with these characters. It just all kind of felt natural. And I did enjoy that. And I didn't think I would. I had no hope at this point in the season. This was really the one that kind of turned things around or maybe one before this, because I wasn't expecting much. I'd had a lot of disappointments. I'd fallen off a lot of shows. And I thought this was just going to be forgettable, just like the ranking of Kings one. And I didn't think I was going to get back into it, but I did. And I think it's excellent. I think it's really fun. Now, you obviously have to watch the original series before watching this. There's so many fun moments in here, and it's cool to kind of reset and start back and get yourself acclimated as it goes into chronological order as to what happened as it plays out in the events of the original. So I really enjoyed Horimiya, The Missing Pieces. I didn't really expect to. I'd put that in that B tier as well. You're going to have to watch the original and do some homework, but I think it's just such a fun show. Okay, so that was number four. My number three is part two of Sugar Apple Fairy Tale. Usually I would, I guess it's categorized as season two of it, but really it's just a split core. It premiered in the winter, I talked about it. Typically it's weird to see these things both in the list on you know the same year, but since I am doing these as seasons, kind of have to talk about it that way. So this is done by JC Staff and ran for 12 episodes. It is on Crunchyroll. In Sugar Apple Fairy Tale, basically you have Anne Halford, who is trying to become a um, silver sugar master. I won't spoil what happened in the first part with anything, but she has kind of a rocky road that she goes that she goes through, but she does get this fairy called Shao who protects her, and the two kind of develop a relationship with each other. Kind of giving a broad synopsis without spoiling anything. The genres are adventure, fantasy, romance, shoujo. And the tags are art, food and beverage, interspecies, relationship, uh, medieval, non-human protagonist, orphans, based on a light novel. And if you didn't get it from my last one, um, they basically live in a world where they make this stuff called silver sugar confections. And that's a big industry. And she's within that industry, and fairies are kind of slaves to humans for the most part. So this kind of continues that story where we left off in the first one. And I think it did an excellent job. I think it elevates itself above the first season a little bit. Did a really good job of continuing on the story. I mean, it left kind of a cliffhanger the last time. And I think this is really good. It's got some more action in this season, although it did have some good action in the first one. But it kind of mixes a lot of different things. You do have those action sequences, but you also have, you know, moments where it's triumphant when they're putting together designs. And Anne basically in this one is going off to work at this particular workshop and they have a task to do. And she's she's basically 
going through it. I don't want to say much more because I don't want to really spoil anything. But you get some good action. You get some good like slice of life type things. You get some good competition stuff with the silver sugar as we did in the first season. I really like it. I think it's for the most part, it's a light and fun anime. There are some bad things that happen to Anne, especially in the first season or first part of this. But I think, you know, the second season really brings it home and was really well done. So that's my number three. I would give that probably. uh, I'd put it in the still in that B tier of shows, probably, but it's the upper B tier. And that was the one where I probably watched that one and Horimiya and one other that I still haven't mentioned that it was kind of like, okay, I have more faith in this season now because I really didn't know what I was going to have. And this one helped turn it around. Now, number two, I have a show called The Grand Cleric, which was just so much fun. The Grand Cleric was done by Yokohama Animation Lab and Cloud Hearts. Ran for 12 episodes on Crunchyroll. And the synopsis is one man's story of turning blood, sweat, and tears into a successful living. Literally. After his untimely death as the hardest working salaryman in Japan, Lucille is reincarnated into the magical fantasy world of Galadaria. Always the man with a plan, he recreates himself to be a healer and sets about making his way into the world. But while Lucille knows a thing or two about making money, he knows absolutely nothing about Galdardia. Will his good heart and great work ethic be enough to make him the great cleric? So yeah, this the uh, genres on this are adventure, fantasy, isekai. The tags are magic, person in a strange world, reincarnation, and it is based on a light novel. Yeah, this is a good one. This is just a lot of fun. There's a lot of good comedy moments in it. He's basically in a world, created himself as a healer. In a world where healers are in a very precarious situation. You know, they have a lot of power, but they're also not really respected as much. And you'll get into that. But there's awesome characters in this. I think it's setting up, if there is a season two, for some really good stuff to happen down the line. I really liked our main character. I liked all the other little side characters we go through. I like the way the world's built. It's kind of a little bit of a different world. And the way that our main character pushes himself through it and makes his kind of success in the world. I mean, it's very admirable, the things that he does. He is a very hard worker, and that's mainly the reason why he gets ahead in this show. But there's a lot of good gags. I think there's some good serious stuff as well here and there. I really liked The Grand Cleric, and I think it is just, you know, if you're looking to not have too much taxing on your psyche as you're watching something, you're kind of looking more to relax. I think this is excellent. This was one where I just had to keep getting to the next episode, and I can't recommend it enough. I would put it in that A tier of shows, and it's one of the top shows of the summer for me. Real quick editor's note, it is the Great Cleric, not the Grand Cleric. There's only one thing that could have beaten that, and that was the last one that I actually watched from this season, which was My Happy Marriage. This was done by Cinema Citrus, and that is with a K. And the synopsis for this one was, A browbeaten and mistreated daughter is cast out of her family home and sent to audition as a bridal candidate for the heir to one of the most powerful families in the land. Considered nigh worthless for having failed to inherit the superhuman powers of the bloodlines into which she was born, Mia Saimori lives her days unwanted and unloved. 
she is treated as a servant by her half-sister, who, unlike Mio, is blessed with unusual powers. While her stepmother and very own father have little time or love for their eldest daughter. Ultimately seen as nothing more than a nuisance and a drain on the family wealth, Mio is packed off to the Kudo house as a bridal candidate for its heir. I'm going to go ahead and stop there because it does keep going on. This one is on Netflix, and the genres are drama, romance, the tags are adult couples, arranged marriage, death of a loved one, historical, mature romance, supernatural, based on a novel. Now, here's the problem. is This show was lining up to be one of the best of the year. It would probably be right up there in my top spots. But it kind of took a free fall in the second half of the season. The first six episodes are so good, and I really loved them. I couldn't put them down. I had to keep watching them. Then it takes kind of a turn at episode seven, and it kind of falls off a bit. So, and I think I saw this in real time when you saw the ratings weekly, as you see what people were rating it. It kind of was falling there at some point, and it did end up settling a little lower. But the first six episodes of this are awesome. It was gripping. It was thrilling. I loved it. It's essentially like a Cinderella tail kind of with <laughs> a little bit different, but it's essentially Cinderella for a little bit of it. Um, you also have the added thing of these supernatural powers, which you don't get into until like episode two or three. But man, I thought it was so good. And it's still it still was pretty good after the first half. I, if I was that's the thing, like the first half is like a 10 to me. If it would have kept that momentum and kept going, it would have been one of the best anime of this of the year really. Instead, it has to settle for the best anime of the season and maybe still one of my favorites of the year, but it really does lose a lot of steam in that second half of the season. I don't I don't know what happened there, but very excellent for six episodes. And it's really great. I mean, these characters are well developed. They're well thought out. You get to see a lot of their their lives and what have really turned them into who they are today. And I really like that. And you get a lot of, a lot of times with anime, you do get a lot of like heavy handedness in the, you just get a lot of depressing stuff where these people are just kind of beaten down and beaten down and beaten down. And then finally something goes their way and it feels so much better because you know, you've been torturing yourself for a while. I think you do get some of that here, but there are so many happy moments and everything that it kind of outweighs the darkness that Mio is living in. And it's really great to see how she transforms from the first episode to the last episode. So I really do like the show. I'd recommend it for the first six alone, but I think it's it's decent after that point. It's not like it drops off to unwatchable after that point. It's just not as good. It's like you you get all your best stuff in and then you have a kind of a hard time sticking the landing. But it's still my favorite show of the season, and I would still put it in that A tier and it's an absolute recommend. I think there's a little something for everyone in this one just like there kind of is in the last couple that I talked about. So those are my rankings. I'm going to go over a little bit of the stuff I didn't watch that's still pretty high ranked. So obviously Jujutsu Kaisen, second season, didn't get to. Uh, Bungo Stray Dogs, I watched the first three seasons of that one. This is its fifth season. I just didn't, just didn't care for the show that much. It's not bad. It just wasn't great for me. Uh, Bleach, Thousand Year Blood War. I haven't seen any Bleach. This is a sequel series to the original, which is why I don't haven't watched it. I do um, I do want to watch it, but it's just a lot to get through. Mushoku Tensei, Jobless Reincarnation, second season. 
didn't like the first season, so I didn't watch this one. I know people love that one, though. Uh, Baki, Son of Ogre 2. I haven't watched any Baki, so I didn't watch that one. Undead Murder Farce hasn't been dubbed yet, uh, but I am interested. Pokemon Paladin Wins, just not something I'm interested to interested in, but I didn't know they were even doing a new Pokemon. The Masterful Cat is Depressed Again, mm, not something I'm into. Tony Kawa Over the Moon for You, not a fan of that series, so I didn't get on that. Baroni Kenshin 2023, this is a remake of the old show that was from the 90s. I'm just waiting for that to be dubbed. They're only at like episode 7, and that thing started in uh, July. So they're way behind on that. The Duke of Death and His Maid, second season. Didn't really like the first season. The Most Heretical Last Boss Queen from Villainous to Savior just wasn't dubbed. Rent-A-Girlfriend season three, as you'll recall from my last, I think, summer. I dropped season two, so wasn't going to continue with that. Dark Gathering hasn't been dubbed yet. St. Celia and Pastor Lawrence, I dropped just not my type of show. Spy Classroom, second season. Uh, I've never watched any of that, so I don't know anything about it. Helk was one I was interested in on High Dive. But uh, yeah, that's not dubbed at all either. Then you have a The Devil is a Part-Timer remake. I haven't watched any of that. So yeah, that's that's probably about good here. Looking to see if there's anything else. I tried Reign of the Seven Spellblades, even though it was under that average rating I like to keep on top of. I had to turn it off after, I don't know, 10-15 minutes. It wasn't very good at all. So that's going to about do it for this summer season. Uh, again, I'm going to have to have those other seasons. Hopefully they're all dubbed and finished by next time. If I have to watch the end of Aroni Kenshin in Japanese, I mean, I've done that before. It's not the end of the world if I really have to do that. And that's going to become more of a real thing as I'm getting closer. You know, if I'm within a few episodes, I might do it. But as I'm getting closer to being timely, it's going to be a little hard. So, yeah, it'll be a while before I get back to the next one. The fall season seems absolutely insane. It is uh, pretty packed, honestly. There's a lot of shows, a lot of new shows that are getting buzz. There's a lot of uh, sequels as well. And yeah, so I'm looking forward to getting into those and watching them. It's a pretty big season, so hopefully I'm able to get through that timely and get that in for my, like, end of the year wrap up episode that I put out in February. And that's going to wrap up a lot of different things. I'm hoping to have my fall season plus the anime of the year on there. And I'm also hoping to have uh, a game of the year little segment in there with a guest and also my like non horror movie of the movies of the year as well, doing like a top 25 with that. So that's going to be a lot of fun of a recap episode. It is going to come out a couple months late. But I need that to kind of get it all put together and watch and play everything I need to for those. Mainly, uh, it's for the anime and it's for the video games because the movies I can probably get through in January, but it's going to be tight on the other stuff. So that's going to do it for this segment. This went a little longer than I thought it would due to the shorter season. But hey, we're going to keep moving on with the show. And I hope if you're still listening to these anime segments that you are enjoying them. Cool. 
and I'm back with a review of more episodes of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. This time around, I'll be covering episodes 3, 4, and 5. And honestly, I gotta tell you, not a lot happens in these episodes, and I can get into it a little bit later. I will let you know I'm going to go into what basically progresses with the plot in these episodes and how that goes. So if you're worried about spoilers, if you haven't seen these three episodes yet, then please just wait and come back to this later. I just think it's probably it's pretty hard to talk about what's going on in an episode without spoiling what came before it. So there will be full on spoilers for these three episodes. So let's get started with episode three, Secrets and Lies. And this episode mainly focuses on, you know, there's an interaction in the past timeline with um, Godzilla, and then there is a search for the father in the present, which is essentially what you can say is going on in the present for the next two episodes as well. So we're back in the past, and this is really the only time we see this part of the timeline. And I mean the distant past, not like the 2014 Godzilla past. But this is really the last time we would see this in these group of episodes. And they get fully equipped by the military after they tip them off to Godzilla. The military launches bombs at Godzilla and tries to destroy him. And, you know, they think they do. And that makes the, you know, the science team very sad. But that's a really cool sequence. I really liked that. This is where I thought, oh, things might be getting pretty good. You know, we got introduced to Kurt Russell at the end of the last episode. But this is really the point where... We get to see him fully in action. So you've got that going in the past. That's a really great scene. I like that. I like the whole conflict about getting stuff paid for by the military at the cost of not being able to do your research and getting the thing you're trying to research destroyed. And on the flip side, um, in the present, you know, we get there aren't many new revelations or anything that go on. But Kurt Russell is so much fun and he adds a lot to the show, at least in this episode. As far as personal things, you've got Kate struggling with uh, coming to terms with her father's situation still. You've got May, who is really coming off as shady, and uh, something something's happening with her. Something's going on with May, and it's kind of tipped off in this episode. And honestly, the end of the episode was really good, and it ends with them finding out that their dad survived the plane crash, and then their plane gets destroyed by this kind of ice kaiju creature now episode three is great episode three is a lot of fun kurt russell was great in it the past stuff is really great and that kaiju at the end is so cool and you know just ending on that reveal and we kind of had that same thing in the end of episode two ending on a great kaiju reveal so i'm still pretty high on the show at this point when i'm done with episode three you know that was the show before thanksgiving so it was like, watch that, we're going into the holiday, I'm feeling pretty good about Monarch. But then we got into episode four, and episode four is called Parallels and Interiors. So we get kind of into chaos in this episode because, you know, the Frost Aardvark, or whatever this thing is, is attacking them, they narrowly escape, plane gets destroyed, and at one point, I think May falls into water and gets very sick because they are in the Arctic. So the episode kind of goes into that, and we're focusing on getting May out of here. And Kentaro decides to break off from the group and go in a different direction. 
and they don't like this. They don't believe in this. They don't think he's going to he's doing it for the right reasons. They think he's selfish, but ends up at the end of the episode. He saves them because he finds a radio station. He gets help there. And also he finds the proof that, you know, their dad was still alive. He was at a different outpost at this point. And when the helicopter comes to save them, of course, they have this situation um, where they have to figure out how to get on the plane or on the helicopter without the kaiju kind of destroying it. They learn that along the way that it's, you know, attracted to heat. So they create a fire, they distract it, they get out of the plane. Everyone's safe. Uh, May gets back to recovering because she's going to get medical treatment and all that. And then in the kind of flashback of this episode, we go back to 2014 and we get the same thing in the next episode. But we see where Kentaro and May actually meet. You know, Kentaro is an artist. He was at his art gallery getting ready to have a and this is a weird, a weird thing. Yeah, he's taking a picture of his art gallery sign or his art exhibition sign that's on a wall and takes a picture of May as she's walking by. Kind of creepy. You know he intended to take a picture of May. He wasn't just... They get into a back and forth about it, but they end up going and hanging out, and this is where they kind of bond and met for the first time. And it's also the last time Kentaro sees his father, which was at his art exhibit. So that's really... I have a hard time talking about these couple of episodes because that's really all that happens. There's not really anything else going on. Um, we do get to see the Frostvark a couple more times. But yeah, there's this one is just, there's nothing. There's really no plot development. You get to see where Kentaro may meet. It ultimately means pretty much nothing. And then you've got the current day stuff. The drama is trying to get May out of there before she dies of hypothermia. And they do. But... There's not really a lot new going on in this episode, and not to say that it's bad, and I'll get into that when I, once I talk about episode five as well, but yeah, that's that's what happens here, basically. Not a lot of good kaiju action going on, I don't think. I think part of the problem is, is we've got these kaiju, and what you're, what are you doing? You're like running around, shooting at it, shooting flares, things like that. Like, it's not really that enthralling when we get to the kaiju stuff. They're cool. The designs of the monsters have been really cool in this series so far. But it's hard to cling on to them when they're not really doing much or they're there for a quick cameo shot. So I still think the coolest kaiju stuff that has happened in this is the, you know, the atomic launch in episode three at Godzilla. Although that reveal at the end of episode two, and then I would say this thing's pretty cool as well, but they just don't do a lot with them. Oh, and one more thing in episode four is we do see some present day stuff where they're getting readings from one of their outposts. The that monarch is getting readings from one of their outposts, and uh, that that's the other little thing that's nestled in there. But that's really about it for episode four. Episode five is the way out, and in this one you get, you know, now monarch has custody of the four with uh, Shaw, Kate, Kentaro, and May. The director of Monarch here learns that Shaw, who is the Kurt Russell character has kept the three others, Kate, Kentaro, and May, in the uh, dark about what Kate and Kentaro's father was really doing in Alaska. And Monarch decides to let those three go and keep tabs on them and track them to see where they're going. So they're given kind of like a, a tentative freedom. 
really what we have here is they get back to San Francisco and we deal with the fallout of Kate kind of introducing her mother to Kentaro and the whole situation. We find out that her mom really kind of suspected that he was cheating on her. Kate gets kind of mad about that because she thought she knowingly sent her there and that knew what she was going to find. So they kind of have it out a little bit, but they do they do reconcile. And her mom and her friend, they go into the zone where Godzilla attacked us, kind of quarantined, and they go and recover stuff for people. They recover mementos and different trinkets and different things for people. And it's kind of like a, you know, they're let in by security guards. They They do this. This is a legitimate job. So Kate convinces them to let them go into the ruins to go into Kate's father's office to see if they can find any clues or anything. They do have a couple of run-ins there, some close calls, but they do get to his office. They get a map and find out that he was going towards Africa next. So that's the big reveal of this whole episode. I think that's cool, the whole um, the ruins and the quarantine zone type thing where they're going in. I like that part of this episode. I do. We get a flashback to learn just how terrible of a person Kate is. She was dating someone and then cheated on her with someone else and then felt guilty about it. So she got on a bus the day Godzilla attacked to take kids across the bridge instead of staying with her girlfriend. And this is kind of hearkening back to another scene earlier on, I think in episode one, where they were on the bridge when it was attacked by Godzilla and a lot of the kids died. So. You're feeling guilty, you go and you feel more guilt after being on a bus with kids who died. So, yeah, this, I mean, we kind of get the, it's a little tiny scene, but we do get a section where she's a school teacher and her kids are talking about, you know, there's hardly any kids in school and they're talking about, oh, well, their parents kept, people's parents kept them home because of the, you know, kaiju that are moving towards San Francisco, which, yeah, if I saw that and they were moving towards here, I think I would get my kids out of school and get the hell out of San Francisco as well. But there are still kids left behind and uh, Kate's trying to play it off. And then you get the principal coming in and kind of saying, hey, we're monitoring the situation. So be ready. But that's that's really all that happens here. We get one little piece of plot progression and the rest is just kind of nothing. And this is my problem with the series right now, is that episodes four and five, nothing really happens. We get a little bit of slow plot progression, but they are really dragging this thing out. And it's not like it's bad. It's not like I'm disliking what I'm watching, because I think it's good. I think it is done well. My main problem is just like nothing's happening. We're just, you know, we get a little bit. And I think a lot of these things would be forgiven if I were watching this show maybe all at once. You know, if I was watching it and binging this thing back to back to back, maybe it would be a little bit different. Maybe I'd feel differently about it. I'd be able to forgive those kind of episodes easier. But when you only get one a week and you're, you know, when episode three came out, I was really anticipating it. Same with episode four. Episode five, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'll get to it. And that's kind of the zone that we're in now, and I'm feeling the same going forward. So I hope they break out some stuff. Now, listen, I wasn't expecting, and I'll talk a little bit on a different part of this episode about, talk about this kind of thing in TV where I I wasn't expecting full-on kaiju battles and things like that going into the show. 
What I was expecting and what I got in the first three episodes were interesting characters, interesting stories, and now we're kind of just kicking that down the road a little bit. There's not not a lot new is happening and keeping you enthralled. And I don't want to say I would like them to move to like a monster of the week thing because I don't think that would work either. But I think something's got to give here. We've got to get some meaningful progression instead of just Oh, now he's in Africa. Let's go. And again, I like a lot of the the moments and set pieces, and it's still a pretty good story. And we are fleshing out the background of some of these characters. Not that it is that um, that enlightening. Oh, and one other thing is May in this episode also uh, calls in and wants to cut a deal with Monarch to kind of get free of this situation. So... May's not really a trustworthy character either, but we don't know what's happened in her past yet. My uh, intuition is we will get a similar 2014 flashback to May and her situation to feel sympathetic for her in some way. That's probably what's going to happen in episode six. They might try to find a way to Africa. They probably won't get there, if we're being honest, in episode six, but we'll see. I would just like it to move a little bit quicker and have some more meat on its bones, and I think that's the biggest issue for me. But those are the last three episodes of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. I will continue talking about these going forward. And I might end up doing all four in the next episode. I might finish up with six through ten. That will finish up around mid-January. So uh, I might throw those all together and just wrap it up in the next time I cover these. But I'm still I still think it's a solid show. I do. And it's got some good production values. And there's still some good back and forth with with Kurt Russell's character, but we kind of abandoned the past for a couple of episodes and it's almost noticeable. It's like they're trying to fill time with these other characters, and I don't know if that's the right move, but we'll see where it goes. I will withhold final judgment until it's all over. Let's go ahead and keep moving on with the show. Hello, and I am back here to cover a couple of games and review a couple of games that I have been playing recently. So now I'll be talking about Spider-Man 2, first up, Marvel's Spider-Man 2, and then also Mortal Kombat 1. So first up was Spider-Man 2, made by Insomniac Games. This is the sequel to 2018's hit Spider-Man and the 2020 spinoff Spider-Man Miles Morales. And I got to tell you, I absolutely loved Spider-Man 2018. It was my favorite game of that year. It's one of my favorite games of the entire PS4 generation. And I will, of course, have talked about that in a different part of this episode. But I loved Marvel Spider-Man, and I thought it was great. I thought the story was great. I thought them using all the villains was great. I thought it was just the complete package. So this was, of course, one of my most anticipated, and I picked it up pretty close to release date, which I don't I don't really do anymore. I usually wait for sales and pick things up discounted. Now, after playing Spider-Man, it took me about 30 hours. I did get a platinum on this, so I got all of the trophies for this game, which honestly isn't that difficult for the more modern PlayStation exclusives, they make it pretty easy to get the Platinums, which I think is a pretty good strategy because you want 
your games to be the ones that get people into trophies in that ecosystem. So it makes sense to me to have easier achievable ones there. And I think like 20 some percent of people have the Spider-Man 2 Platinum. And honestly, if you're doing all the side content, it doesn't take much additional work or anything to get it. So I can understand that. So I don't have mixed feelings on this game, I wouldn't say, but I do have a couple of things that just bugged me throughout and kind of kept this game from reaching the heights of its predecessor. And I I think, honestly, playing this game, the gameplay of this game, the same thing I said about Final Fantasy 16, the minute-to-minute gameplay is really good. But there are some more glitchy, buggy things in there. And I did, I heard things about bugs, and I know it is ironic to have bugs in a game about Spider-Man, but Insomniac and Sony don't usually release products with a bunch of bugs in them. Well, I, I did have it crash on me once. That was just once. But there are other little buggy things. And one thing I found very clunky was the traversal and getting around the world. Every once in a while, you'll be trying to swing and you'll just run into a building. And let me tell you, when you hit the ground, when you hit any kind of an obstacle, a building, good luck getting back into the air because it's going to be a frustrating you know, 10 to 15 seconds while you get back to where you're going and get reacclimated. And it really is like, and anytime you're trying to stop on a rooftop, it's so awkward and clunky. And, you know, because there are stashes on the rooftops, there's crimes on the rooftops. Anytime you're trying to get down and run for anything, it is so clunky, so jittery. It's not great. So I had some problems there. I don't feel like I remember having these issues in the first Spider-Man and it was kind of it's kind of like they almost wanted you to get away. I mean, web swinging still feels really good in this game, and it felt really good in the original game. But with the addition of the web wings, which I think is excellent, I think the web wings are great. I think that's a fun traversal mechanic. And I think that's the easier way to travel. It's much more it's easier to get around. It's easier to control. I think that's the way they really wanted you to go. And maybe that's why there was some more clunkiness with the other stuff as they were trying to work out the web wings. But honestly, once you get to a certain point, you don't need it anymore. Because the fast travel system in this game is one of the most incredible features and improvements I've seen ever. This is a great system. Essentially with fast travel, so Spider-Man 2, let me set it up a little bit. In this game, you're coming back, and I, I realize I just kind of dove into like talking about some gripes with the games without even going over it, but in Spider-Man 2, you're picking up after Miles Morales. You now have the ability to play as both Miles and Peter, although I would say Peter takes the center stage in this one. And you're dealing with a lot of the backlash or things from the other games. You do have old villains kind of coming back and you get to see something with them pretty early on in the game. You're introduced to a new villain and his factions, and that's Craven the Hunter. And I don't think it's any surprise that they build up in this game that there's also some symbiote stuff with Venom going on in this one. So those are your two main things going on in the story. I will say with the story in general, this game gets pretty dark at points. I mean, there's some pretty brutal stuff that happens in here. And I think that's really what you welcome in with the introduction of Venom. But you've got plenty of villains in this one. You have New York is broken up into districts and you basically have different activities to do within them. There's side activities, there's side quest. 
I think there's only like one or two side quest lines. And yeah, that's that's about it. As you complete the activities within a district, you get upgraded. And on that second upgrade, you get to fast travel there. And on one of those upgrades, you get to fast travel to that location. So now you can go to the map, you can go anywhere in that district and hold the triangle button and it'll just drop you in there and you'll automatically be in the web wings. It'll take like three seconds to load where you can't control your character, but you're at least still going towards your destination. So that was great. That was a great implementation. The combat even changes up a little bit too. You have your standard ability trees that you go through. And this time around, each character gets a second set of abilities. So you have your normal abilities, and then there's a second grouping of abilities that you can get unlocked as you go later in the game. I'm not going to say what any of that entails or what it goes into. You're back to where you can buy a bunch of suits. You can upgrade your suit with like health upgrades or damage upgrades. You can build your technology. There's different little gadgets and combat basically works. It's a it's basically brawling. You know, you're going in and pressing buttons, you're dodging, you're hitting, you're parrying. Or you have your gadgets um, and your abilities, and they have certain cooldowns, or basically, I think they fill up as you do certain things within combat. And that's the essential gameplay. You use your gadgets, you use your abilities, and you, then you just punch, dodge, punch, dodge, things like that. Uh, there's also a stealth mechanic, which I absolutely love in this game. I love using stealth anytime you can. But that's the basic gameplay loop. You have crimes that you can go and stop and uh, go and do combat with them, like stop these, you know, stealing a car or setting a building on fire, things like that. And then you do have your side activities like taking photos of places because, you know, Peter Parker is a photographer. But a lot of the side storylines involve different villains or end in away so say you have the prowler missions which the prowler was from miles morales he was a villain that had to do was pretty connected with miles and you go and you clean out all of his stashes and then you get a reveal at the end and same thing with the other side quest within this you get reveals at the end of them a lot of them uh, there's different things going on and you basically have like little side villain it's very reminiscent of batman arkham knight which had the same kind of thing. Not as well done as that, but there's some pretty good ones that they that you end up going through. I specifically liked the Mysteriums and the Flame side quest line was pretty cool as well. So there's a lot of cool things within those. I do want to talk about the ones that aren't so good. And, you know, there's some just bad, cheesy writing in some of the side activity. The photo op stuff you go take a picture and then you have, and I can't, I'm blanking on his name. It's the guy who works at the Daily Bugle as well. I cannot remember his name, uh, but he's kind of telling you or commentating on all these pictures. And dear Lord, I know people from New York are proud of New York and have fondness for New York, but this dude is overselling it. Like New York is the best place in the world and there's nothing like it. And Every single time you take a picture, it's like, you know, it's really blowing smoke up New York's butt. And it gets kind of annoying. I ended up just muting it during that stuff. I was kind of flying around listening to a podcast while I was just getting those photo collectibles because they kind of unlock in waves. You know, you can do the photo ops at first and then maybe there's like the prowler stashes. 
And then you have to do story missions to unlock the other side activities. So you can kind of do those in chunks. But I thought that was bad. I thought the Brooklyn Visions kit, maybe I'm just an old cranky man right now, but there's this academy that Miles goes to, Brooklyn Visions, which is for uh, very smart children. And, or I shouldn't say children at this point, most of these kids are like teenagers. But man, those, there were like four of those quests. And I'm like, I can't relate to these kids. These kids are not, uh, these are not the kind of kids I grew up with. This is not like, I don't know. It, it was just annoying to me and grading. I found it. And that's just a generational thing, I think. But I hated those. And the other thing I didn't like was there was a point when Peter, and I don't remember this in any of the other, and I get that Peter's smart. He's a science nerd. I don't remember this in any other Spider-Man where I just felt like he was going on and on and on about science and getting excited about the most the kind of mundane scientific stuff. And I'm like, this is and this was very short. These are all very short things like I was able to get get through them and move on. But he was just really rubbing me the wrong way with what he how he was just kept going on and on and on about all this stuff he was seeing. And I I didn't like that at all. If we're going into another negative, I've got to warn you, if you played Spider-Man 2018 on PS4, they have changed all of the character models from that, essentially. And I know they updated some of those, specifically the Peter Parker one, which was a big scandal, a quote-unquote scandal. They updated his face for the PS5 version of Spider-Man that came packed in with Miles Morales. And I don't like, I don't like it. They kind of made him more in that Tom Holland vein, which I, I mean, I get why they did it, but I, I don't like the change there. I also, going back and forth on the change to MJ, they definitely made her features more rough, more rigid. I don't know, more pronounced. I don't know how to describe the change to MJ, but it was very striking. If you go and look at 2018 Spider-Man and look at MJ in this one, they're very different. And I like aspects about the new character model. I don't like other aspects. Uh, Miles... Miles didn't bother me um, with the slight changes they made to his character model. But yeah, you're essentially in this game. You're just getting back with the old cast and crew. And it's kind of hard when these people aren't the ones you remember from 2018. Since we're talking about characters. And let's let's talk about this. And I want to get my negative, my last negatives out of the way right now. The lizard looks awful. I hate the character model for the lizard. I just want the old lizard and I'm fine with making changes here and there. I don't need every villain to be the same, but man, I, I just did not like the lizard, the look of the lizard. And I don't think I'm the only one in this game, but I think he's terrible. The other thing in the original game, you were playing with sections with MJ where you were going through like stealth sections and you were trying to uncover stuff as a reporter or a journalist or investigative journalist, whatever. So suddenly we get a throwaway line about how MJ has been training with, I think, was it Black Cat she was training with or Sable? I can't remember if it was Silver Sable or Black Cat. I don't know. Maybe I missed something because I didn't play like the City Never Sleeps DLC that came out for the first game. So maybe I missed something in there, but MJ is kind of like now a... She's taking down people. She, you know, she has stun guns. She has all this other stuff and she's taking people down. Like she's suddenly a superhero and like that's just going to change between these games. Like she gets a little bit of training and now she's able to just 
take down grown men, that was a little far-fetched because she was so ineffective in the first game, and I find it hard to believe any training is going to make her to this level that she is in this game. But I digress. Spider-Man 2, all those things aside, is just such a joy to play, and it is so fun to play. Those are all nitpicks. Those are all minor things that would take me out of the game for a little bit, and I think that's why it doesn't quite get to the height of its predecessor. Also, the story doesn't really stand up as well. It's still a good story. I just thought that one in 2018 was so expertly done. And there are some great story moments. Don't get me wrong. Uh, We have Mr. Negative back in that one, and I love his entire arc in this game. There are some really good story moments, but I never bought Harry as a character. You know, Harry uh, Osborn comes back in this one. He's Peter's best friend. Never really got into him as a character. He was part of the reason why, you know, once he came into the story, I kind of that kind of played into my when Peter was having his science, you know, when he was swooning for science there for a minute. But yeah, I think I think it's really good. I think the story is really good. There's some really good moments in there, uh, really standout moments in that story. And it comes down just like I said with Final Fantasy 16. Nitpicks aside, I was just itching to get back to this game. It plays so well. It's so fun. Just going and doing these side activities is fun. I don't care if it's more of a traditional open world or not. Going through the story missions was really cool as well. There's They shake it up. They don't just play it safe with the story missions. I feel like you're doing all kinds of different things throughout these different areas. The side quests are, you know, the side activities are so varied too. There's a lot of different things to do in this game. And I found most of them to be pretty fun, honestly. I love playing Spider-Man 2. I love being in the world of Spider-Man 2. It's just great. And all the nitpicks aside, I think there's so many good moments. There's the gameplay is just so fun. The gameplay loop is great. And it just feels good to play the game and be back with this game. And I was, you know, trying to race through this game because I just kept wanting to play it over and over again. And I think that's the important thing with this. Now, again, it does fall a little short of its predecessor, but I think Spider-Man 2 is still an excellent game, still one of my favorites of the year, and I would absolutely recommend it to anyone out there looking for this type of game. Okay, now really quickly, I want to get into my time with Mortal Kombat 1. Now, what did I do with Mortal Kombat 1? Now, this is the latest, this is the 12th mainline entry in the Mortal Kombat franchise. I have played, I would say, a majority of the Mortal Kombat franchise. I played the first couple, and I've also played a little bit of Armageddon, a little bit of Mortal Kombat 2011, uh, Mortal Kombat 10, and Mortal Kombat 11 as well as some of their spinoffs and side ones. I guess Mortal Kombat versus DC Universe counts as one, but I love the characters of Mortal Kombat. I love the world of Mortal Kombat, especially with these new games. I really like the stories that they're telling, even though it could get a little uh, bombastic sometimes. So with Mortal Kombat 1, I played the story mode, which has kind of become famous and set the standard for fighting game stories. So I played that. That lasts about six or seven hours, I would say. And then I played each character's classic arcade. And this is usually how I play these fighting games that I like. I'll go through the story and then I'll go through and play their arcade tower, which is essentially just going through and fighting, you know, six or ten 
opponents, and then you get a short little story about what happens to their specific character after the events of the story, of the main story. I think they did a really good job of, you know, they do that. They're saying this main story, that's canon and what happened, and we're going to tell, give you a couple little brief, you know, it's it's nothing great. It's a couple of stills, still images, and you get a few lines of dialogue about what's next for them, but it's pretty satisfying to go through. You get to try out every character, play through that. So I did a little bit of that, and then I tried the invasion mode, which takes place in Johnny Cage's mansion, and didn't get too far in that, but I will get into my thoughts on that as well. So with the main story, I think they had, they really had me at first. And something happened that caused me to maybe fall down a peg on this. The last act, so what happens in the first couple acts is they get back to basics. And this takes place after Mortal Kombat 11. And Liu Kang is now kind of shaping this universe and timeline. And he makes it so the really bad guys don't have power in this world. They're in check. And he tries to make, you know, he switches roles of some characters up a little bit. So he is now like the outer god. And Raiden is now just a normal martial artist, just like Liu Kang was. So it kind of switches things around. Some characters look different. They have different movesets, some to some extent. But essentially everything has been reset. This story is so grounded, and it feels so much like that 1995 film. And I think that's a good thing. That's in a good way for me. I'm nostalgic about that film. I like how it tells a story. It doesn't get crazy and go over the top. That's when Mortal Kombat was still telling grounded stories before like the PS2 games that came out. But I think it does a great job there in those first couple acts. And you've got... An excellent grounded story with these new characters. You've got characters that we haven't seen since some of those PS2 games, like Lee May and uh, Azura and Natara. And they treat them with such care. You know, there's a 23 person roster in this if you count the bonus Shang Tsung character that you get from. I think I just bought the game new and got it. So. And then you have Omni Man out as the first DLC, which I have no interest in the guest characters, but. Really, the roster is 22 plus Shang Tsung, and then um, Omni-Man is the 24th right now, with more DLC planned that I'm not all that excited about. But they do a great job of introducing you to characters that we haven't seen in a long time, and probably some Mortal Kombat fans have no reference point for. But I like that they don't really... I mean, we, we got one carryover character from the previous games. You know, those new crop of characters they came up with. We only have one of those. And he makes sense to be in this story. The rest are just, we're taking these older characters that have been forgotten for a while, and we're going to treat them like new characters. And then you're going to have all of your uh, standard favorites. Although there are no, there's no Jax, there's no Sonya. There are certain characters that are missing. Also, you have the uh, cameo fighter system, which is, you know, you have a separate set of moves for a cameo fighter. And these are people you can't play with, but they can come in and help you during matches. They have some cool ones there. They've got Frost. They've got, uh, unfortunately, you know, they've got Mataro, who is one of my favorites. I've been wanting Mataro back. I think he's only been in Mortal Kombat 3 as a, yeah. I'm thinking that was the only one he was in. He was the boss of Mortal Kombat 3, or the sub-boss. And I've wanted Mataro back for so long. Apparently, you have to get to level 30 in the game 
and I was at like level 24, I think, when I stopped. So I unfortunately did not get the cameo of Mataro, so I was very upset about that. But you have characters like that and characters like Serena, you know, characters we just don't see very often in here as cameos. Goro, of course, is there. So I really like that. When they first go to Outworld, it is a thing of beauty. It is great. I love the introduction to that. I love the whole way the story goes through that. And then you get to the third act and it gets to the same cosmic dire Armageddon level circumstances. And while that last level is pretty cool and has some funny moments, I really wish they would have kept it grounded like they did in the first couple acts. And that was my biggest disappointment, but it was still a lot of fun. Uh, the most fun you're going to have with a fighting game story, I think, out there. And then I got to my time with playing through the ladders and just fighting these different characters. My main gripe with the ladders is, you know, in a 10-person tower, so a 10-fight tower, you can fight yourself three different times. And you always fight yourself right before the uh, boss who is locked in as uh, Shang Tsung and Quan Chi. So a lot of times in these games, they'll have a sub-boss that's said it'll be like Goro or Kentaro, or Mataro, or something like that. But in this one specifically, you fight yourself with the same cameo fighter that you have right before you fight the boss characters. Which I think is weird. Also, there's no real increase in difficulty, I noticed, with the boss characters either. They're kind of the same as the rest. And, you know, how many times have we seen Shang Tsung as the villain? We get that again here. But I do have to applaud it. It is fun to play. You still remember all the same movesets. You know, they carry those over from game to game. And it is enjoyable to go through every character and see their ending. And then finally, I did play a little bit of the invasion mode, which which seems really cool. I'll probably go back to it every now and then, but you can go in there. Um, it's basically like a board game. You just go through. There's no crypt in this one. Uh, there's the shrine where you can go and spend points for rewards, or you can unlock rewards as you level up your characters. But there's no real crypt or anything like that but you do go into the johnny cage mansion you kind of have different scenarios and fights in there there's a shop where you can unlock things it seemed pretty cool it seemed pretty ambitious and i do want to get back into that but yeah that's really what i thought about mortal kombat 1 i think it's an excellent fighting game i love how it's not too confusing it's easy for anyone to be able to pick up and get through it and I think they make that mainstream appeal, and that's the why this is superior to something like Street Fighter or Tekken to me, because it does have that ease of use. And fighting games aren't easy to play, usually. They're pretty hard, but I like Mortal Kombat. I love what they do with the story. And honestly, it's worth it for those first couple of acts and just how great that is. I was thinking this was going to be, you know, and it still might be one of my favorite games of the year. But I was thinking, oh, this thing is this thing is perfect if they nail the landing on this, but yeah, that's what I thought of Mortal Kombat 1. It's really fun to play. It has a great variety of modes that I think could keep you busy for a while with the invasion stuff. I don't know how long that goes on for, but they've definitely switched it up and haven't played it safe. So, And while the violence kind of, you kind of get numb to that. When I remember playing Mortal Kombat 2011, which was the first kind of PS3 one that they did, and just being shocked at the kind of stuff that they were doing. Of course, I was in college as well. Uh, so I would enjoy that. But it kind of gets old seeing that stuff now and you kind of just tune it out and just have fun playing the game. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to briefly talk about Mortal Kombat 1 and Spider-Man 2. And with that said, that'll be a wrap for this show. Now next up, I'm going to be doing something for end of the year stuff with horror movies. So 
You can look forward to that coming out on January 1st if all things go well. As far as plugs, you can always find me over on Horror Movie Podcast. We've got a lot of stuff recorded over there. It's just a matter of getting it out. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can also join the Facebook group. Send an email to screamingthroughtheages at yahoo.com. And I'd appreciate it if you tell your friends and leave reviews or subscribe on your favorite podcasting service. With all that being said, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly dose of Screaming Through the Ages.